The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Still says we're waiting for it. I don't know. Fuck it. It must be working. And we're live. I have no idea if that's true or not, but I'm going to define it as true. It is Monday, December 4th, 5.05 p.m. Uh, You're watching Dog Shirt TV, probably on uh, uh, Zoom, since the YouTube stream does not seem to be working. And I'm going to get Yasha talking and while I while he starts talking, I'm just going to uh, work on that live stream. In the meantime, um, we are here to discuss. I'm going to slow walk all my interesting points so people. Yes, can you catch just up. you just want to defer them. Be boring at the beginning. Um, you know, do, what all, I aim for. do all the uh, the the most offensive stuff while the audience is is contained. Um, Yasha's book is the identity trap. Uh, And I want to start with uh, the big question that I'm sure uh, no one's asked you yet, Yasha. When did you sign up to be a surrogate for Ron DeSantis? (laughs) Um, I I never have, no, no, no will. Um, All right. So let's let's take that as a joking uh, jumping off point and say a lot of people who uh, look glibly at the thesis of this book will say, oh, another uh, another uh, white guy um, of a certain age demographic uh, who likes the liberalism, the, the lefty politics of his generation, but doesn't like the lefty politics of the generation that comes after him. And so he's signed up with the anti-woke league. Um, how are they wrong as regards your book? Well, first of all, I think that um, if you have been uh, conscious over the last decades, you have noticed that there really is a new political ideology that has changed what much of the left is like, um, that many universalist commitments that uh, help to define what it is to be on the left um, have uh, been challenged and in some cases simply gone out of a window in the last decades. And so what my book actually tries to do is to chronicle the nature, uh, the history of these ideas and how they became influential uh, over the last decades um, and to provide a serious critique of these ideas. Um, uh, and I think that while there are many um, critics of quote-unquote wokeness uh, who operate in bad faith on the right, um, there are also um, uh, very serious ways in which some of the uh, ideas and some of the social practices uh, that this ideology have, have inspired over the last years have proven to be uh, very counterproductive. Um, and in fact, uh, as somebody who has been worried about the rise of populism, uh, but people like Donald Trump for a very long time, as somebody who's a democracy crisis hipster, who's uh, you know been... Um, arguing about the threat that populists uh, pose to democracy since before it was cool, 
Um, I'm also very concerned that they uh, uh, this set of ideas actually helps to explain uh, how people like Donald Trump continue to be competitive in our politics, why so many people don't have much trust in our institutions. So help me out. Um, actually, I don't really need help on this because, as you know, I'm quite sympathetic to the thesis of this book. But a um, a reasonable person looking at th- this from a sympathy with, um, uh, I-, I would say, sort of left identity politics will say, um, you know, Yasha professes sympathy with a whole lot of the, uh, with a whole lot of the goals, a whole lot of the causes, but he kind of doesn't want anything to go too far. And it seems to me you are actually arguing something else, which is that you're not sympathetic to the goals and the causes. And in fact, you actually do the work to go back and look at the roots of some of these ideas and where they come from and kind of make the argument in a very gentle way that some of them are pretty rotten from the beginning. And so I'm, I guess let, I want to get you to talk a little bit about how much of this is an intellectual history of what, what most people call wokeness and what you call the identity synthesis and how much of it, I mean, it's, it's got a lot of intellectual history of it, um, but it's also got a lot of what um, uh, we in college used to call we we didn't call it woke we called it pc um and you know there's always been a just kind of the tired liberal frustrated with the people who are you know in one generation communists and the next generation new left activists and the next generation it was us and the identity politics people and now for you it's the 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 woke mob how much of this is just you know is really an intellectual history and how much is it just every generation faces this same problem and the task of liberalism is kind of not getting too exhausted um well i mean so first of all i think that there have been many illiberal left movements and uh the task of standing up to those movements has always been important, particularly to people who are on the liberal left or who are on the democratic left. You know, when you look at the founding of a magazine like Dissent as democratic socialists, today some people like to use that term as though it was self-evident, that by being socialist, you're democratic, or if you're a true democrat, you must be a socialist. To the founders of that magazine, democratic socialism meant standing up to the Stalinist socialism, the illiberal socialism that was very, very uh, popular in intellectual circles at the time. And so that was a genuine commitment, right? Um, Students at my high school in Munich, um, decades before I was there in the 1960s, marched down the main street of Munich shouting Ho 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 Chi Minh, Che Guevara, Lenin. So I think, you know, you're certainly right 
that part of uh, what it is to stand for the liberal left has always been to be able to recognize that there are elements of the left that are not liberal and that must be opposed because they are capable of doing genuine damage and they in many cases have done uh, genuine damage. So I think, you know, that I, I, I agree with. I do think, though, that part of this political movement is uh, different ideologically from those previous movements. You can say it's the new incarnation of what sort of a center of gravity of the liberal left is in 2023. And I think they'll be right in certain kinds of ways. But just as it was important to understand and argue against the shortcomings of Maoism or the shortcomings of Stalinism in the 50s and 60s, I think it's important um, to uh, argue against the shortcomings of an illiberal form of identity politics today. And so that's the second point, which is I have no problem. I don't talk about the woke mob, by the way, in the book, to be very clear. I know you're being um, uh, uh, hyperbolic, but, 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 but I don't use that language and I would not use that language. Um, I understand that there's um, genuine concerns about injustices uh, based on identity uh, that that are well taken and um, uh, uh, that obviously our countries have been deeply shaped by historical injustice and remain unjust in, in significant ways today. But I think one of the reasons why I do indeed think that this ideology is a matter not of going too far in the right direction, but of going very much in the wrong direction is that it's actually a rejection of the mainstream movements that fought against those injustices in the past. And one of the things to understand about critical race theory, for example, is that it, its founders explicitly set themselves against the mainstream African-American tradition of political thought in the United States and against things like the civil rights movement. For Derek Bell, the founder of critical race theory, uh, he he argued, for example, that we need to get rid of what he calls the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. So we are here dealing with an ideology that I think is new in important respects, even though it may be a new iteration of the liberal left, um, and that is very radical in so far as it rejects things like the core tenets of the civil rights movement, explicitly so since its founding. Um, and uh, so one thing that makes this moment different is that for uh, the first time, at least in a very long time, uh, that illiberal left movement is in charge in many American institutions in a way that it has not been in previous junctures. So one of the things that we've seen over the last uh, couple of months is a kind of working test case of this theory which is the the reaction in liberal and uh, left circles to the October 7th uh, uh, massacre in Israel and to the subsequent Israeli reaction. Um, and I think you see in the kind of reaction of a lot of campuses and a lot of uh, uh, left groups and then the appalled counter reaction by uh, liberal groups a kind of clash of these two, uh, of the sort of uh, identitarian left, or as you would call it, the the identity synthesis uh, advocates, and more conventional liberals, or conventional liberals. And so I, I want to ask whether, first of all, you agree that this is a kind of very vivid um illustration of the uh of the 
difference in worldview? Um, and secondly, how you would describe the clash? Yes, I think so. And, uh, you know, obviously the conflict in the Middle East as a whole is very complicated and um, we should have uh, deep empathy for, for all of the civilian victims of this conflict. Um, uh, it's perfectly legitimate to protest for the rights of Palestinians. Um, when you look at some of the reaction on the left after October 7th, however, I do think that it's been quite shocking when you see um, uh, you know, a, a chapter of Black Lives Matter in Chicago called for protest before Israel had uh, started to respond to uh, this attack in any serious way um, uh, uh, that featured uh, uh, paragliders um, or parachuters um, in a seeming allusion to the parachuters who landed at the music festival in uh, southern Israel and killed uh, over 150 uh, people at that rave. Um, when you see uh, professors at Columbia University sign uh, a statement of solidarity that not only neglects to mention the Israeli hostages, but describes that terror attack as military action. Um, when you see similar kinds, actually, of it was worse than that. They described the the terrorist attack as as the Palestinian counteroffenses, uh, or at least the most recent uh, statement did. Oh um, wow! Yeah, perhaps which, that is. Yeah, I mean, so you know, so it's there may just, have been more than one. Right. So, so, so when you, you know, on that kind of area of complete denial of that uh, awful terror attack, the worst killing of Jewish civilians since World War Two. Um, uh, you really have to try and understand what's going on. And I do think that the ideology that I described in the book has something to do with that. You know, this is the uh, result of looking at the world by saying you can understand it by dividing whites versus people of color, colonizers versus colonized, by having an exclusively structural interpretation of racism in which racism is no longer having first personal beliefs, you know, like I think members of that group are somehow bad and therefore I'm a racist. It is merely uh, or predominantly, you know, you are a member of a marginalized group and thereby you suffer structural racism. And there's no such thing as being racist against the dominant group, as many people have come to believe. And then you impose that on Israel-Palestine and say, well, Israelis are white, the settler colonialists, and therefore, any form of resistance to them is just a counter-offensive. It's just a form of resistance. And of course, this has nothing uh, to do with a much more complicated reality on the ground, in which, for example, a plurality of Israeli Jews are Mizrahi, um, who have um, uh, fled uh, Middle Eastern countries since 1948, mostly, um, you know, been thrown out of places like Iraq and Iran and Morocco and uh, Syria and elsewhere, um, are not ethnically in any obvious way distinct from Palestinians. They're not on average any more dark-skinned than, uh, or light-skinned, sorry, than Palestinians. Um, and they had nowhere else to go. So the idea that these are sort of white colonizers um, and that the resistance by the people of color, uh, no matter how brutal, is simply uh, a legitimate form of resistance is uh, truly distasteful. But 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 that view is what has driven all of those letters by artists and writers and so on. And it is deeply rooted, as I show in the book, in the kind of basic conceptual categories of the identity synthesis. 
All right. So I want to uh, spend the body of this conversation talking about the intellectual roots of this, mm. because I actually think, you know, uh, that's from my point of view, the most interesting part of the book is is actually where the ideas come from. I, I found some of it quite surprising um, and um, and a lot of it uh, very intuitive. And so I'm uh, I, I think people will have their own opinions about, uh, you know, what's going on on campuses. I hate it. What's uh, cultural appropriation? I personally love cultural appropriation. I think uh, music is incomprehensible without it. We have a music historian in the audience. Um, uh, I would invite uh, Richard's uh, sense of whether there is such a thing as music without cultural appropriation. Leave all that aside. I don't actually want to get into the culture war aspects of it, but I think the history of it is the history is really interesting. And so one of the one of the theses that you advance is that basically the the synthesis is kind of. Edward Said uh, working with Foucault, working with ideas of Foucault and. So I just want to pose the question, how much of this is really Foucault on steroids from Said and everything else flows from that? Uh, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I'm struck by is that I do think we're, we're dealing with a generally new political ideology. And yet there's uh, virtually no serious discussion of the intellectual history of these ideas. There's a few kind of mostly right-wing polemicists who've written about it. There's, so far as I know, nobody in academia who's offered an intellectual history of these ideas, which is quite remarkable. Um, so uh, what people like Chris Rufo and so on say is that this is a form of cultural Marxism, that the way to understand this ideology is basically to take Marxism, take out cultural uh, economic categories like social class and so on, put in cultural categories like race and gender and sexual orientation, and boom, you have... Uh, quote-unquote wokeness um that is wrong substantively i think saying that you can take economic class uh economic categories like social class out of marxism and be left with a lot is a little bit like saying you take the bat out of baseball that's just not very much left um and it's also wrong as a matter of intellectual history as it turns out so i trace this set of ideas back to michel foucault um who was influential in a number of ways he rejected uh, grand narratives uh, like Marxism, uh, but also like liberalism, uh, also like the basic principles of our democratic political system. He became very skeptical of claims to a form of neutral truth um, or to the idea that societies in his day had really made progress in how they treat uh, criminals, the mentally ill, sexual minorities, um, he thought that the main locus of power, of political power, was not uh, a top-down hierarchical exercise of power in which, uh, you know, the state uh, passes, you know, the Congress passes a law and uh, bureaucrats and the police force enforce it and so on, but rather that sort of this conversation is an exercise of power because it really inheres in political discourses and the way we frame the world and think about think about it. Um, and as a result, he became quite skeptical about the possibility of political progress because he thought that any 
set of discourses or any discourse would end up being about as um, constraining, about as oppressive as the other. So the most we can do is to resist this, to resist this discourse, which will lead us to a moment of uh, freedom, to a moment of uh, 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 sort of a space to act. But very quickly, a new set of discourses is going to prove just as constraining. And so, um, there's a and set that of that he described how his own would come to be very constraining. Yes, interestingly, and I think he himself would be repelled by much of the ideology that he gave rise to. That's one of the ironies that I trace in the first part of the book. Um, and so, you know, that turned out to be very influential. And uh, one set of thinkers that was really attracted to these ideas at the same time tried to put the politics back into it. And that was particularly true of post-colonial thinkers. Um, and it makes sense in the context, right? They uh, had to think through how to lead newly independent nations. Um, they wanted to reject the kind of Western ideologies that had shaped those uh, nations in the period of colonialism and that had often uh, provided justifications for colonialism. And liberals are often singled out, singled out for blame here, um, uh, in part because some liberals, by no means all liberals, did provide justifications for colonialism. But Marxists also did. Um, Karl Marx's justification for colonialism in India was oddly very similar, ran in parallel to John Stuart Mill's justification of uh, colonialism in India. And so people like uh, Said and Gayatri Spivak, an Indian literary theorist, were really attracted to postmodernism and poststructuralism because these ideologies uh, promised that they would explain to us how we can reject uh, those longstanding ideologies. Um, they're a, a kind of universal solvent. And at the same time, they needed to figure out how the country should now rule themselves, what kind of institutions should they have, what kind of uh, laws should they have, what kind of uh, ideas should govern them. And so they set out to make this ideology more useful for straightforward political action. Um, the first step here was Edward Said and Orientalism, as you implied. Um, what Said said is that um, uh, the West's construction of the East, of the Orient, in quotation marks, is a lot of what justified colonial rule. But the point was not just, as Mr. Foucault's notion of a discourse might have implied, uh, Said says, um, to explain what's happened. It is to redistribute political power, to use this more politicized form of discourse critique in order to put power in the hands of the oppressed. And here you get one of the first themes of contemporary social justice politics, which is this kind of form of discourse critique as a way of making supposedly political progress. And you see it in a lot of our politics today. It sort of feels natural to us that one way to have feminist politics today might not just be to ask for a particular kind of law to be on the books, to be passed by Congress or parliaments, but to celebrate or critique or render problematic the Barbie movie. But this is one kind of form of politics uh, today is I think, quite obvious. And that's rooted in this post-colonial reading reaction to the postmodern project. So how does it go from that to becoming hyper-personal? Um, so um, Edward Said was a 
a flamboyant character. He was a combative intellectual, but on a, a he was quite genteel. He was not a uh, he was not personally censorious about um, uh, you know sort of wagging his fingers at people and saying that they're you know, he wasn't part of what's become a call-out culture, right? He was a stuffy intellectual type. Um, And somehow this morphs into uh, a kind of sense that the, the, the personal thing that you just said warrants... Uh, you know, a kind of humiliation in response and a kind of call out as, you know, very kind of Maoist uh, framework. And I'm wondering, one thing you don't go into in the book is where that really personal is political aspect of of uh, the, the it's, it's a part of the synthesis, right? And if you're not with me, I will... Uh, you know, I will picket your your falafel stand. Yeah, so I think there's a few more steps in the intellectual story um, that, that help to explain that a little bit. But then uh, that really is answered by how these ideas become uh, popularized and I think in some ways vulgarized. So, so just to give at least one more step in the intellectual story, you know, uh, Spivak is this other post-colonial thinker who is really grappling with a kind of semi-rejection of identity categories in postmodern thought. Right? Michel Foucault, in our terminology, is a gay man. He's the man who has sex with men. Um, he doesn't like that label uh, for homosexual in particular. He thinks it's too constraining of a variety of sexual experiences. And, and he and um, uh, uh, Gilles Deleuze have this interesting um, exchange where they say, you know, it's you know, Marxists always wanted to speak on behalf of proletariat. Well, it's time for intellectuals to no longer speak on behalf of other people. You know, the workers of Paris can speak for themselves. And Spivak is quite shocked by this. Um, she's herself a translator of Derrida. Uh, she brings out the first edition of, of his work. She writes an introduction of over 100 pages to it. Um, uh, uh, but... But she's really disturbed by this because she says the subaltern in the third world, people in the streets of Kolkata, they can't speak for themselves. They don't have the political resources, the material resources. Somebody needs to speak for them. And so she grapples with the fact that she buys the kind of postmodern, post-structuralist rejection of identity categories. But she nevertheless feels that somebody needs to be able to speak on identity, on behalf of identity categories. And that requires those categories. So she comes I mean, up with this, this kind of slightly... is more i mean this act, this aspect actually partakes a bit of cultural of cultural marxism insofar as she's kind of reasserting the idea that there needs to be a vanguard of of i mean it's not the party but it's the intellectual who's going to uh exercise a kind of dictatorship of the masses of the street people of calcutta right Yes, and it's sort of it's not about economic categories in different ways. Um, but yes, I think there is a sense of consciousness raising, right? And she says, look, what we need is strategic essentialism. Even if philosophically speaking, these essentialist notions of identity are wrong, for strategic political purposes, we have to act as for their right. And that sounds a little incoherent. She admits that. She said, my search is not one for coherence. 
Um, but we need to uh, encourage people to lean into their identities. And that explains a lot of, uh, again, how our politics works today. Why, if you go to an activist space, people say, well, race is, of course, a social construct, broadly agree with, and then go on to say... Embrace your whiteness. (laughs) But we need to, you know, uh, center black and brown people, or, you know, we have to do what BIPOC demand, right? And 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 so on. Um, so that I think is an interesting um, uh, transformation, and 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 that helps to explain a little bit of what you're talking about. Because I think what happens then is that um, as this theory later becomes popularized in social media, um, a lot of people start to define themselves by their identities. They're saying, "What I am is a function of the intersection of identities at which I stand." And that naturally leads to certain kinds of political demands. And if you are undermining those demands, or if you disagree with those demands, you're really attacking my identity group. A political disagreement with me comes to be interpreted as an attack on the identity group, on, you know, whose demands, uh, you know, whose interests that demand is supposed to wholly encapsulate and summarize. And that's, I think, where uh, it becomes easy to 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 cast it as this sort of unacceptable transgression. Um, just one more thought is that you said that Said himself was rather more genteel and thoughtful, um, and Spivak herself was too. I mean, there's really a kind of theme here where the people whose ideas help to shape this ideology come to rue that. Um, uh, you know, Said. Um, since we've been talking about him for a little bit, let me let me um. Uh, uh, quote this, he said, you know, identity um, is as boring a subject as one can imagine. Um, uh, for he uh, 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 certainly is uh, worried about the way in which people have been victimized on the basis of their identity. He says, victimhood, alas, does not guarantee or necessarily enable an enhanced sense of humanity. Uh, marginality and homelessness are not to be gloried in, they are to be brought to an end, so that more and not f- fewer people can enjoy the benefits of what has for centuries been denied to the victims of race, class, and gender. And in a similar way, you know, uh, Spivak, in reference to the tea wallers, chai wallers who sell tea in the streets of India, um, uh, refers to the humorlessness of the identity wallers at American universities. So these figures come to be quite skeptical of the influence of their ideas, often explicitly so, even as they become, as even you know, as they come to be taken up and institutionalized in the firmament more broadly. Uh, before we go on, Richard, you have a question or a comment? But you got to unmute yourself. There we are. Okay, I'm unmuted now. Hello. Um, so I, I wanted to say, Yasha, that I... I uh, uh, extremely sympathetic to the book, and I, uh, I, uh, I'm glad that uh, there's another thing out there uh, addressing this. I also, um, uh, I also have to commend you for your courage because I know that in uh, certainly in an academic setting, um, it's not to, to speak about this. This is um, uh, it's it's not easy, and so um, so uh, you know I you might my moral support there. Um, I did feel, however, some in the book that I, I felt like I was seeing a marksman work 
um, who was very good, but had been handed a um, a weapon with a um, with a defective scope, and uh, I felt like, uh, in some respects, some of your arguments I felt missed the mark. Um, you, I felt like you'd kind of nibbled around some of the edges of it, um, and um, I, I guess one of the and I, one of the things that uh, stuck out for me, for example, is that the I felt like although that in your discussions of Adolf Reed's work, you um, took on some of the economic sides of it. Um, I felt like the, the cultural, um, the cultural, what we've called the cultural turn um, was kind of um, only far back in the background. The fact that this, this idea of reducing everything to culture um had um you know kind of hijacked what has a lot of the discussions that we've been having in the academic in the academy since um you know certainly since the 80s um and you know to the to the point that um and of course as we've seen with uh, with adolf reed and others like him and also with a number of uh figures in the frankfurt school um that uh, those sorts of arguments that don't take care uh, culture to be fundamental uh, don't seem to be, um, they don't even get a hearing um, much. And so I'm just wondering uh, your, own, your own thoughts, your own perspective on, on where culture fits into this. Um, if, uh, if I'm misreading your book or, um, you know, or, you know, what's going on. Um, yeah. So I guess um, is the question about where sort of how important economic categories of analyses are versus well, how important cultural relative to culture. Yeah, I mean, I think that my, my objection, my my point is not that we should um, completely base ourselves on one or the other, right? So I, I find it striking that in the United States, you know, many of my colleagues in the social sciences will publish studies in which they ascribe something to race. Um, by running a multivariate analysis, but they don't have a class variable. And in a country in which, of course, it is true, for example, that more African-Americans are working class um, uh, than, than white Americans in, in proportional terms, um, for the more white working class Americans than black working class Americans in, in absolute numbers, um, that's simply going to mislead you, right? Um, if you just look at race without looking at class, you are going to ascribe to race some things that are actually a matter of social class. Now, conversely, in France, many social scientists run studies in which they look at social class and they don't look at race. And they're going to ascribe certain causal phenomena to class when they are at least partially due to race. Um, so clearly the answer is that we have to look at a little bit of both. When I offer a kind of rational reconstruction of this new ideology in the fourth part of the book, I say that it consists in three main claims. One, that the prime prism, the principal way to understand the world is to look at race, gender, sexual orientation, and other kinds of identity markers. Secondly, that universal values and neutral rules are just a way of pulling the wool over people's eyes and perpetuating existing forms of uh, racism and sexism, which is why we've not made any progress on those. And thirdly, therefore, we have to Provost on the ash heap of history and make how we treat each other and how this trait treats all of us explicitly depend on the kind of identity groups to which we belong. Now, 
forget the second and third of part of this for the moment. On the first one, my answer is that, uh, yes, of course, race, gender, and sexual orientation and our identity categories matter for understanding the world. That is certainly one of the things we should look at. But they are not the only one we should look at. If we only look at the world in terms of those things, we are going to badly misconstrue it. We should look at social class as well. We should look at patriotism and nationalism as a motive force of human history. We should look at religion as a very important factor in history. We should look at individual actions and aspirations and idiosyncrasies as explaining a lot of how the social world works. We need, instead of coming to the social world with a maniacal assumption about how to read it, to go into each situation with those different possible lenses in our mind and try them all and see which combination of those actually can help to explain a particular kind of situation. So I, I guess the answer I would give is, um, you know, I think uh, when you have a worldview, as many of my students now do, that, expl- that, that, that looks at everything for identity categories, you're going to neglect the very important uh, uh, dimension of economics. Um, but I would have the same criticism of Marxist theorists who want to look at everything through the lens of economic class, when I think other things, including identity categories, also matter. What we should reject is a monomaniacal methodological approach that thinks that by some theoretical commitment, we can always know in advance what matters in a particular situation. All right. So I want to go back to your point that some of the theoreticians of this have had second thoughts. I was witness. I got to be careful how I talk about it because we were under Chatham House rules. But I was witness to a confrontation between you and somebody who was named in the book, not a quite friendly one, in which um, uh, somebody you discuss in the book uh, uh, heard you present on this and you guys had a very interesting interchange before an audience about it. I'm curious how, whether you've heard from any of the theoreticians, uh, some of whom are still alive, whose work you discuss and uh, in sometimes you critique, but you deal with their work quite in an engaged way and quite respectfully of the ideas that they're advancing. And in some cases point out that their work is more complicated than the characterizations of it or than the implementations of it. Uh, Derek Bell is no longer with us, um, but some of the others are. Have you heard from any of them in response to the book? And and if so, what was their reaction? No, I haven't directly. I mean, when I think of uh, sort of the main figures that I write about in the first part of the book, I guess there's five or six, Michel Foucault and Jean-Luc Lyotard, uh, Edward Said, uh, Gayatri Spivak, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, the only two of those who are alive are Gayatri Spivak, who continues to teach at Columbia University, I believe in her, well into her 80s, um, uh, and Kimberly Crenshaw. And I haven't um, had any kind of direct exchange or meeting with with, with either of them. It would be very interesting too. Um, uh, there are people who I've argued with in different parts of the book who I've had conversations with. You know, when you look at the chapter, for example, on cultural appropriation and why, like you, Ben, I, I think that um, mutual cultural influence in a deeply diverse society is something we should celebrate rather than worry about. Um, uh, you know, I've had a really interesting and I think quite friendly, spirited, but very friendly 
uh, debate on uh, NPR's Room to Debate um, about cultural appropriation with one of the main theorists who have tried to make sense from a philosophically rigorous perspective as to what's the worry here and why it should be a serious worry. That's um, uh, T. Christopher Nguyen, um, very, very, very good young uh, philosopher. Um, um, you know, so, so that perhaps is the closest I've come to having that exchange with somebody whose ideas I've really discussed in the in the book. I mean, this is part, of course, um, and I don't want to put this in particular on Spivak, who's in her 80s and has other things to do, on Kimberly Crenshaw, who, who strikes me as someone who's open to serious conversation, um, if I don't personally know her, um, but uh, but of a broader culture where there's not much exchange on these ideas, um, right. that where, where many of the critics of these ideas have had open calls to say, I'm happy to debate anybody on these on my critiques of these ideas, and they've never been taken up. Really serious people who are who are in good faith. Um, and I'm struck by the fact that this is quite different when I go to France, in part because those ideas, I think, um, are less in the ascendant. They, they, they don't own public discourse in the same way. And so there's a woman in France called Rokaya Diallo. She used to write a little bit uh, as a global opinion column for the Washington Post. So some people may know her from that. Um, and she's sort of known as sort of the most woke person in France or something like that. She's she's sort of the most visibly, the most visible woke media presence in France in a certain kind of way. Um, uh, and we met at a conference in France and and and, and had a spirited debate. And we've since had a number of occasions to have public debates in France and have become sort of friends as a as a result. And I'm just struck by the fact that sort of whoever you might think is her equivalent in the United States would not have engaged in similar public debates. Um, and there is, I think, something uh, wrong, both with some of the ideology that leads people to think that if you disagree with these ideas, you must be a bad person or you must be insincere. I do think that there's elements in the popularized version of this ideology that lead to that. But it's also uh, connected to some of the specificities of American public discourse and the power that these ideas have come to have very, very quickly, where people feel like they don't have to debate. Somebody like Okaya has to debate to make her point of view heard. But as a result, I think her arguments are actually rather more uh, uh, subtle, and she's much more impressive than some of her American equivalent figures. And so when you talk about the the translation of this into an enforced regime, and I mean regime in the top to bottom sense, right? It has elements that are enforced as policy, it has elements that are enforced as norm. It has all kinds of layers, um, including just the basic social expectation layer. Um, you ascribe a huge percentage of it to social media and to Tumblr in particular. Um, and as the parent of somebody who was part of that Tumblr world. Um, uh, and I, I do think the influence, the cultural influence of Tumblr is really o understated in under discussed. And, um, and so talk about the process of, you know, something going from the level of 
Kimberly Crenshaw and uh, and Derek Bell and uh, uh, Roberti Spivak to something that, you know, is a part of the personnel policies of a thousand different corporations and, you know, is, you know, something that the CDC takes into account when it decides who gets vaccines and in what order. How does that happen? It yeah, happens it's really, really fast. Yeah, so so far we've sort of been so the book has four parts. I'm not we're not going to talk about all of them today, but just to give people a sort of taste. Um, the first part is an intellectual history, which is sort of what we've been talking about so far. Um, the second part then asks, well, how do those ideas actually go from being cloistered in the university to being influential in society as a whole? I mean, the third part offers a critique of the main applications of these ideas to areas like cultural appropriation, free speech, the new forms of separatism, and a lot of progressive educational institutions, um, race-sensitive public policy, and so on. And the fourth part, I alluded to it a little bit, um, uh, really offers a, a sort of a Russian reconstruction of this ideology, as well as a liberal response to it in the case for liberalism more broadly. Um, uh, so, so speaking to the second part, to how do these ideas come to be so influential? By the way, Kimberly Crenshaw in 2011 publishes a paper celebrating the 20th anniversary of critical race theory. And she says, look, we've come to have a lot of influence in the academy and it's lovely, it's a success story, it's great, but you know, we're not gonna have any influence in society as a whole. You know, this guy, Barack Obama just got elected. His, and again, this is an indication of how radical these ideas are. You know, his political philosophy is fundamentally at odds with the key tenets of critical race theory. He seems to be pretty popular. We're not gonna have any influence in mainstream society. It's a pretty pessimistic from her point of view paper. Well, 10 years later, the ideology is incredibly influential. Kimberly Crenshaw has come to be a household name virtually. A household name is perhaps exaggerated, but certainly somebody who's known very broadly in activist circles and political circles and some intellectual circles. But um, how does that happen? Well, part of it is a short march with the institutions. Part of it is that, uh, uh, as we have learned, um, university campuses really embrace those ideas and many university departments embrace those ideas, but so increasingly do administrators who are really influential in those places. And so students who graduate, especially from those top universities, go into the workforce and bring those ideas with them. Part of this is a story about Donald Trump's victory and the way that that screws up the country in all kinds of ways, but also screws up the kind of critical bodies, bones on the left, um, uh, makes it very hard to criticize bad ideas on the left about being accused of somehow running interference for Donald Trump. Right? Um, but part of it really is this organic social media story. Um, and Tumblr stands very much at the origin of that. Uh, Tumblr was the first platform in which people could really assemble by uh, finding a, a, a kind of uh, uh, hashtag effectively uh, that describes them. Um, uh, in which they could self-assemble uh, by topic tags. Uh, that was a sort of technological or, I guess, conceptual innovation at the time. And what these mostly teenage users of Tumblr ended up doing was to uh, uh, proliferate the ways in which they might be able to self-define. Um, it is where a lot of new uh, gender categories were invented. Um, but a lot of other kinds of forms of political self-identification as well. And I think it blew out of the water sort of basic constraints on identity 
formation that you have in the analog world. To have an identity that's shared with others, you need to have a minimum number of people. And most people want that to be people they can communicate with in a direct way. So in an analog world, if you want 10 people who share your identity group and there's a thousand kids in your school, you know that means it has to be an identity that at least 1% of people are going to share. That makes it hard to get a lot of new identities off the ground. Uh, so you end up with a 90s high school movie, right? With the geeks and the uh, jocks and the, you know, whatever, six or seven kind of groups, right? Um, suddenly in the world of Tumblr, you can find 10 people anywhere in the world to co-create this identity with. And so it becomes very generative and somewhat productively and positively generative of these different identity groups. But those then need an ideology to hold them together. To, to 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 figure out if you're defined by this identity and that's the most important thing about you and that's how we see the world, how are you going to communicate with each other? And a kind of popularized version of this identity synthesis, in particular of ideas around intersectionality, around the idea that you have to defer to the spokespeople for other oppressed and marginalized groups and that any one uh, activist in good standing or Tumblr user in good standing has to sort of embrace all of the canonical interpretations of what that means for how to think about everything from environmental politics to um, uh, African-American activism to Israel-Palestine. Um, all of that starts to take off on Tumblr and then gets translated into a written form on websites like Ford Catalog, everydayfeminism.com, salon.com, and then slowly starts to enter more mainstream media outlets. It transforms what Vox looks like over the course of the 2010s. And then, of course, you have a mainstream media that at the time is in deep crisis economically because the print ad is cratering. Um, they want viral articles. And as they see many of these first-person articles telling stories of injustice and discrimination in the jargon of a popularized identity synthesis, go pretty viral, they say, well, why don't we buy in some of those writers and give them a stake? And so suddenly within the course of 10 years and in some ways in the course of five years, this ideology goes from the very margins of the internet on Tumblr to the New York Times opinion page. And your answer, I'm, I'm being very crude about it, is double down on liberalism. Um, and um, there's, you kind of, the, the third and fourth sections of the book basically have a kind of Reagan-esque, there's nothing wrong with liberalism that can't be fixed with what's right about liberalism. Um, uh, and I guess my question to you about that is, you know, if I were, um, if I were skeptical of that position, which in my more despairing moments I am, I would say, look, you know, it was the uh, the ideological inadequacies of liberalism that created a hole for these uh, ideologies to blossom in. Why do we think that liberalism is capable of addressing the the inadequacies that uh, allow large numbers of people, particularly intellectual elites, to think that, you know, the promise of equality is a sham and 
you know, meritocracy is is just cover for power and uh, and cultural appropriation means the rich steal from from the poor rather than what it really means, which is we all influence each other. What's um why what what is the basis for confidence that liberalism has the tools to address this? Um, you know, if if we have to pick a center right political leader that you're gonna uh, 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 sort of uh, use to characterize uh, the third and fourth parts of the book, how about we pick Churchill rather than Reagan and say because liberalism is the worst system of government or the worst philosophy for government except for all of the rest and. I think whatever Boy, this, we the, could have fun with this game, um, like see which which uh, which leaders we can plug liberalism into their quotes and still have it work. Um, well, you know, let's get a beer and uh, liberals will 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 uh, do the right thing after exhausting all other options. Yeah, well, that too. Churchill. Actually, I think. Well, yeah, I think a lot of these work. Um, look. Um, uh, one 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 case I make in when when I describe liberalism in its own terms uh, in the book is uh, you know beyond explaining why it's a society we should aim to live in one of political equality and individual freedom and collective self determination why that's something that is uh, deeply appealing in itself because it is the most principled answer to the basic problem we otherwise have in the world but we need government. But the moment we have government, we uh, ask ourselves who should rule. Um, and liberalism has the best set of answers about how we can have a government that is useful to us because it can create public goods and other things without becoming tyrannical. But it also has incredibly uh, important empirical benefits. It is not a coincidence that when you look in the world today, all of the richest countries in the world, excepting a couple of, um, you know, oil-rich dictatorships of less than 5 million people, are liberal democracies until this day. The countries in the world with the highest human development index are liberal democracies. The countries in the world that people around the world say they most want to migrate to, if they had the choice to migrate anywhere they want, are liberal democracies. Our societies are phenomenally successful and they have been able uh, by and large to keep the peace with each other in a way that is not true of dictatorships with each other or even communist regimes with each other and so on and so forth. So there's many empirical reasons to think that liberalism is actually doing pretty damn good by comparison to the competition. And more importantly, when we think internally in our own societies, Yes, there's significant injustices and problems in the United States and in other liberal democracies as well. But unlike what people like Derek Bell claim, he claimed that the American year 2000 was as racist as it was in 1950 or 1850, that uh, race may have become less naked, but it was as present as it ever had been. Uh, that, I think, is simply untrue. In fact, I find his statement to be offensive, not to the great Americans living today, but to those who suffered much worse forms of discrimination in the past. And how is it that we've made those forms of progress? Because of the great political movements, some of which drew on identity, but asked for inclusion in universalist political institutions, 
that fought for progress by invoking liberal ideals. What did Frederick Douglass say in his most important speech and what to the Negro is the 4th of July? Uh, he called out his fellow citizens on their hypocrisy for celebrating the idea that all men are created equal on a day when African-Americans were still held in slaves, uh, still held in chains. Um, but he said the solution is not to rip up those principles, it's to live up to them. If you believe in the idea that all men are created equal, then by what right are you excluding us from the enjoyment of those institutions? And by the way, when you look at people um, who are arguing for gay rights, including some people like our friend Jonathan Rauch, who was among the first to argue for the idea of same-sex marriage in the pages of a major American magazine, they will tell you that the first battles they fought were against people within the movement who didn't want inclusion in universal institutions, who said, we don't want to get married. That's for terrible hetero breeders. You know, we want to blow up bourgeois institutions, right? And people like Jonathan Ross say, no, this is how we're going to win this fight by saying, how is our love different from that of others? Why should we not have the same rights, uh, the same respect as heterosexuals enjoy in this society? But what right are you excluding us from them? So I think that the invocation of those universal values and neutral rules has been a huge part of how historically we've been able to make progress. And so I don't see myself as a defender of a status quo. I want to defend elements of the status quo. Uh, but I think that liberalism has always been a progressive project, one that tries to make the world uh, come into closer alignment with the institutions, uh, 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 with, 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 values that that we hold and that work is not yet done there's evident injustices that we have to fight against in the united states but i think the demand for inclusion in universal values is how historically we've made progress um and it is how we're likely to continue to make progress so i want to close with the linkage between this book and some of your past books your your past books have been uh, uh, both in the academic space and in the more popular space, uh, uh, I would say in in the vein of uh, both warning about democratic deconsolidation, but also about democracy protection from the illiberal forces of the right. Um, the um, a lot of your critics would say. Okay, Yasha's both sidesing it. He's done the 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 illiberal right is really dangerous. Now he's doing the uh, illiberal left, particularly on campuses, is really dangerous, and they're exporting it to your schools um, and to your workplaces. So, I guess my question I'll we'll close on this is: first of all, how does this relate to your past work? And secondly, how do you assess the uh, the dangers of the illiberal progressive, whatever you want to call this, the identity synthesis world, uh, the woke mob um, versus the other forces that you talk about and that you've written about. Yeah. So, so look, I think it should be possible to walk into gum at the same time. Um, I'm more worried about Donald Trump. Uh, than I am uh, about the influence that these ideas have on campus. Um, I've written at least two books 
dealing with a threat of people like Donald Trump. When I first wrote a book about it, it was one of the first books that was dealing with populism and explaining what it is and so on. I was very early to the game, but I, I tend to believe in the virtue of not repeating yourself as a writer um, and of uh, you know talking about things that are great breaking new ground rather than the things that everybody is writing about. Um, and at this point, I you know I don't have that much new to say about populism. I've written hundreds of articles about it, hundreds of episodes of my podcast dealing with it, you know, hundreds of talks and interviews and public speeches and so on. And there's lots and lots of great books and, and articles and contributions about this topic from lots of people. So I think intellectually, uh, there's less new, 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 new ground to, 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 to drag, to, 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 to open. So yes, I'm very worried about Donald Trump winning the election and 2024. I think he may well. If you give me even odds right now, I would say that Donald Trump is going to win and that would be terrifying. The second Trump term would be much worse than the first Trump term. Not only should we also be able to worry about some genuinely bad ideas on the left, about the way, for example, in which teachers in many elite private schools now are splitting kids as early as eight or seven or six years old up into different racial groups for part of the week, because that, I think, is going to backfire badly in terms of the kind of society that we should create. But also, fighting against one is not in any way in competition with fighting against the other. In fact, they are mutually reinforcing endeavors. Why is Trump doing so well in 2024? There's all kinds of reasons for that. But it's not that he's super popular. Most Americans deeply dislike Donald Trump. It's that they don't trust the left to run the country, that they've lost trust in a lot of our mainstream institutions, that a key new voting bloc in the Republican Party, about 10% of the Republican electorate now is mostly young, mostly non-white, mostly pretty progressive. Should we be voting for the Democratic Party, you might think, but is voting for the Republicans because they're very worried about the hold of wokeness in our political institutions. And so to me, um, you started off by talking about you know, DeSantis and so on. Um, I think writers and journalists tend to be clever by half. We tend to think, oh, if there's a problem in the world, as long as we don't talk about it, people won't notice. People aren't idiots. And I think that it, I'd much rather them understand the, the liberalism on the left, in my terms, that is conformable with the defense of liberal philosophical values. And it comes from the mouth of somebody who will also tell them, as I do in the book, that people like Donald Trump are a serious danger um, then leave that field to the people who do actually want uh, uh, Trump to win or who want to become mini Trumps of their own. I have a disclosure that I have to end on, um, which is that I am a uh, uh, alum of the Bank Street School um, uh, in New York City, which features in your book as a particularly villainous uh, location of this ideology. And I will say that uh, that surprised me, actually, because when I was at Bank Street, um, it was uh, progressive elementary education in the best sense of the word. And um, and I did not know it had morphed into um, uh quite the monster that you describe it. Uh, so I was uh, 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 saddened on behalf of my alma mater 
um, uh, where our idea of crazy progressive elementary school was to have a Ben Franklin printing press in the third grade room and just to see what we would do with it. And we all learned how to do printing. Um, and I believe I was in the first class in the country to have computers. Um, oh, wow. Bank Street did all kinds of cool experiments. And I'm sure um, that Bank Street is still doing some good things. I, I, I don't want know, to. You know. I have no contact with it. I have no sense of what it does now. Um, but uh, uh, it is apparently part of the identity synthesis. And that makes me sad as one of their few, I think, guerrilla right-wing graduates. Um, uh, Yasha Monk, enemy of diversity, equity, and inclusion. <laughs> You're a great American. Um, and um, uh, thank you for joining us on Dog Shirt TV. Apologies to those who tried to join on the YouTube channel. I will upload this video to it so that you all uh, get to see Yasha in all his uh, uh, um, right-wing glory and uh, pick up the book. It's With Heitman such as you, Ben, I don't know <laughs> what friends yeah. I need. It's, it's Yasha Christopher Rufo Monk. Um, uh, um, uh, the book is The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. And we will be back next time. Um, uh, and I am not sure who our guest is going to be yet because I have uh, been doing a lot of reading to bring you these episodes and I um, am no longer ahead of myself. So uh, stay tuned on Dog Shirt Daily for the announcement of the next set of shows. Thank See you, you for having me on, Ben. Thank you for coming. <laughs>